Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And today we have a special guest here with us. Yeah. Kitty. Hello. Hello. Yes, today we are, are joined by our wonderful friend, Kitty Moore, who is, as she describes herself, a scholar of no importance, a.k.a. a very <laughs> smart person uh, that we brought on to talk about none other than the mascot of this podcast. It's true. <laughs> Oscar Wilde himself. We're finally there, folks. Hi, Kitty. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do, other than being a scholar of no importance. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I have a boring day job in scientific publishing, but the thing I've been doing for the last, and then I did the math, and it's almost a decade, oh has gosh. been um, wow. studying the life and work of Oscar Wilde. Woo! Doing, right? Doing, like, nerdy research into queer people in history as a hobby. Gee! <laughs> wow! We wouldn't know Sounds anything familiar. about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm in good company, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to know, just, like, really quickly before we dive in, because holy cow, do we have a lot to talk about today. But, Kitty, how did you get involved and interested in dedicating your life to this patron saint of gayness? Like I said, it was about nine years ago when I read The Picture of Dorian Gray in its entirety for the first time. I was pretty familiar with the story. I, I think most people are. And something about Wilde's prose really struck me. Mm. Um, it's really cheesy, but I've always said that it, it sort of resonated with my soul, which is the most Wildean thing. Ever <laughs> He'd be proud. Yeah. But, <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, oh, I want to know more about this person and more about this person's life and their work. And here we are. Yay. Excellent. Well, yes. Wonderful. So yeah, we have a lot to get started with. We do have some content warnings for this episode. Um, yes. So there will be some frank discussions of sex work and uh, Victorian sentiments towards uh, ephibophilia, which is sexual interest in teenagers aged 15 to 19. So this was a thing that was going on in a certain subset of society in the Victorian era. We're going to talk about it. And as always, we will give you content warnings in our show notes. There's also going to be discussions of abuse, violence, brief mention of suicide and murder. This is going to be a heavy one, folks, but also really fun. Yay. Yes. Yeah. Like much of Wilde's works, there is a mixed bag of emotions. <laughs> yes. Mixed bag of emotions is a good way to put that, I think. We also have a corrections corner. So in our Rainbow Rising episode on Gilbert Baker and Brenda Howard talking about the creation of Pride, we had a you know a comment a little discussion afterwards where we were talking about how the first one and the and succeeding years after in New York City it was called the Christopher Street Day Parade and then in other places it kind of evolved towards just pride or other names that people have come up with for it and we made a comment like it would be weird that it would be you know Christopher Day Parade in I don't know, I can't remember the country that I named, but we learned from some really wonderful listeners, pointed out to us that there are places where it is still called the Christopher Street Day Parade, and that Germany is one of them. 
that was super awesome to learn. So thank you, folks, who pointed that out to us. Yay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Always learning. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a people episode focused format, though, uh, as we have with some of our other, like we did with Virginia Woolf, there is no distinguishing between the biography and why we think they're gay because uh, it uh, pretty much all goes together in Oscar Wilde's life. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? I was gay and I wrote about it. Right. So we are going to talk briefly a little bit provide some socio-historical context fairly briefly, then we will dig into our bio slash why we think he's gay. And in there, we'll have our word of the week, some pop culture tie-ins. And then as always, we will end with how gay were they, our personal ranking system about how likely it is we think that they weren't straight. Uh, You can probably guess this is going to be a pretty high ranking one. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. Do we have any announcements before we get started? Mm, Not not so much. I think just continue checking things out on our website, like Patreon, store, fun things. Um, In our last episode, we put the call out for gay ghost haunting cards. Please send us those in a voice memo if you want to be included in that. We're going to feature some of those in a future uh, letters and queries episode. And this is your opportunity to get in on one of those without being a patron for the first time. Ooh, we're excited to hear those. Yes. That'll be awesome. All right. All right. So let us get into Oscar Wilde. Talk a little bit first about 19th century England. As y'all know, my favorite, my favorite, Victorian. Oh, yeah. We're making Gretchen do that again. (laughs) Because I just, it always just frustrates me. So why not? Late 19th century in England is an interesting time for LGBTQ folks. And it is because of these interesting developments that the wild trial even happened not the other way around. Unfortunately, we are mostly going to be talking about the history as it applies to gay men on the one hand, because Oscar Wilde is Kitty's area of study. We actually did originally intend this to also include a discussion of his niece, but uh, guess what? We went too long. So we're going to save that for a second episode. Yeah, part two. (laughs) Part two, we'll talk about Dolly. She's utterly delightful. So that's part of the reason we're going to focus on gay men. And also because, as is fair to point out during this time, that men, especially upper class men, were the one that had the money, education, and time to pursue political action outside of the home and especially the ability to issue marriage. They had a fairly well-protected social standing, not to mention that, as we all know on this podcast, we know more about men in history than we do about women and gender nonconforming folk for obvious Bullshit, hetero, patriarchal reasons. Fuck yeah, the patriarchy. fuck the patriarchy. There's our, what, it's just like a normal now. Yeah. Fuck patriarchy, fuck colonialism, fuck all those horrible things. <laughs> there was already something of an existing homosexual society in 19th century England. Men who wanted to have sex with other men could find social or romantic or sexual company. However, there was not necessarily the same kind of gay culture that we have now, as those of you who listen to us know. We like to distinguish between the current understanding of gayness as like a social, cultural, political marker, more of an identity marker versus the way it would have been understood in the past, which would have been more along the lines of you can have sexual relationships with other men, but that may not necessarily make you gay in the same way that we understand gayness as a term now. So we always want to point that out. Also, in the late 19th century, there was a push for visibility normalization and decriminalization of homosexuality in England. In some cases, this was done through a purely psychological or medical route, while others worked to frame homosexuality through cultural means. 
In his book, Masculine Desire, Richard Delamora describes, quote, the sorts of discourse, scientific, aesthetic, and pornographic, comprise the aspects of homosexual existence at the time of Wilde's downfall. So in both cases, there was a push against the prevailing social and scientific assertion that homosexuality and homosexual love or sex was in some way unnatural. So there was this kind of push to say that it, it's just as natural. I think we talked about that a bit when we discussed Uranian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did yes. we not? Yeah. Yes. And that's actually going to come up a lot in this episode because this exactly what we're talking about today is what Claude Cahoon was so enamored with, was so enthralled with as like a homosexual ideal. So we're going to be talking a lot about that. So at the tail end of the 19th century, same gender intimacy, sexual or otherwise, was seen you know, like we were talking about, as something far more incidental or situational. Sex with men was something you may have done for a limited amount of time or under particular circumstances, but it wasn't, again, a defining cornerstone of one's identity. In some cases, like we talked about last week, or last, not last episode, two times ago with our Lizzie Borden episode, we also had a big divide between the social spheres between men and women in Victorian society. So again, a really ripe opportunity for, oh, hey, all I am ever hanging out with are men. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, So if you want to hear more about the segregation of social spheres by gender in Victorian society, Gretchen's favorite topic, you can listen to that episode on Lizzie Borden. So in the late 19th century, though, we began to see the coalescence of a social identity start to uh, sen- start to emerge where it's centered around one's sexual or romantic preferences. So we're going to be talking about something called the Labouchere Amendment later. But when this was passed, it was in response to and was intended to increase anxiety among specific populations of men. It placed a number of men, most of whom were in the upper class, men who had been educated in the English public schools, which were infamous for homosexual conduct, as well as fostering emotional intellectual affairs that often persisted into one's university years, in the same category as these new men, these self-identified inverts, that is to say, men who identified by their homosexuality. And this crisis of identity and social perception collided painfully and would have really disastrous outcomes, which is how we get to the wild trials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to do you want to talk to us about the uh, Criminal Amendment Act of 1885, which is going to be a cornerstone of the conversation? Yeah. yeah. So the, the Labouchere Amendment is the shortened uh, social term for the Criminal Amendment Act of 1885. You talked a little bit, and I made sure that I wrote this down when I listened to the episode, about the spinster movements that mm-hmm. were involved in social reform, mm-hmm. talking about like temperance movements and also revising sexual laws and things like that for raising the age of consent and cracking down on sex workers. And this is one of those pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. It just also had this additional fallout. So the rest of the amendment, like I said, deals with things like the age of consent. They raised it to 16 for boys and 13 for girls because Victorians. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. The thing that we're going to be talking about, though, primarily is Section 11 of the Criminal Amendment Act of 1885, and it reads as follows. Any male person who, in public or private, commits or is party to in the commission of or procures or attempts to procure the commission of by any male 
love that legalese. Any male know, of right? any act of gross indecency with another male person shall be guilty of a misdemeanor, and being convicted thereof, shall be liable at the discretion of the court to be imprisoned for any term not exceeding two years, with or without hard labor. Yeah, Covering all, right. all the bases, yeah. The super, super <laughs> important part of that is just the term gross indecency. Yeah, yeah, and that you'll see that again. Mm-hmm. Because sodomy itself what was legally defined as sodomy, was already a crime in the late 19th century, though by 1861 it was no longer a hanging offense. Literally all three of us just like put our hands up in the air. (laughs) In like the most sarcastic way, but (laughs) And there was much rejoicing. Yay. So instead, what Section 11 of the Criminal Amendment Act did was expanded what constituted a sexual sexual crime, banning a vague umbrella of same-gender familiarities and indecencies, in addition to sodomy. Gotta love that vagueness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that was part of the problem, is everyone was like, what is the line, and have I ever crossed it? Oh, Yeah. yeah. Overall, it was a contentious piece of legislation. On the one hand, it was an effort to overhaul the appalling state of Victorian sexual politics. As usual, however, the fallout of good intention policies landed on sex workers and gay people as it tried to more tightly regulate private consensual sex affairs as well as sexual crime. Mm. Yeah, kind of any attempt to quote-unquote fix sexual problems in society usually falls on queer people and sex workers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a great thing. We're going to close these websites. Sex workers. No. Yeah, like oh, gosh, we're going to yeah. end child trafficking, but also breed a bunch of new serial killers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this made all same gender sex acts some degree of illegal, as opposed to just sodomy. And when I say sodomy, I mean obviously in the modern sense, which is to say like anal sex. Though in the 19th century, sodomy could be pretty much anything that wasn't like your standard heteronormative sex between right. a married man. And his wife. So what exactly constituted a homosexual act was pretty vague. So this understandably, like I said, caused a lot of anxiety because many men amongst the upper classes probably found themselves wondering if they had been guilty of that crime, quote unquote, at some point in their lives. The Criminal Amendment Act, which I will probably be referring to as the CAA or Section 11 for the sake of brevity, became Mm -hmm. known as the Blackmailer's Charter. It was called this because it expanded the Victorian sexual economy with the addition of just absolutely rampant blackmail. Personal letters were stolen and could be bought back from or sold at will between disreputable parties. Personal conversations overheard by one's household staff could be ransomed or reported. Such writings which in the years prior to the new legislation could be brushed off as, quote, no more than the romantic expression of personal admiration and affection were under closer scrutiny in the courts. Hashtag no homo. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. homo. Uh, sidebar, this is also the law under which Alan Turing was convicted and forced to undergo the chemical castration that would cause him to take his life. So this had pretty longstanding fallout. Yeah. Oh, wow. I believe yeah. it wasn't completely repealed until 1967. Yeah. Good gravy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So that's our that's our context. Give you a little bit of info around what's going on at this period in time, at least in terms of what the law was saying around homosexuality. So let's get into bio. Let's talk about Oscar himself. So Oscar Wilde is a shortened version of his name. His full name bore the weight of his Irish heritage, Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. So that's Oh a, my gosh. That's a mouthful. 
Um, That's one of the most Irish names I have ever heard oh, in my yeah. entire life. His Absolutely. mom used to make him say the whole thing at dinner parties. It's like oh, his wow. first performance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good gravy. God. And for somebody as long-winded as Oscar, the fact that he shortened it is telling. So he actually once said about his name, my name has two O's, two F's, and two W's. And he observed, a name which is destined to be in everybody's mouth must not be too long. Besides, it becomes so expensive in the advertisement. Because, you know, you get paid by, or you pay by the letters. (laughs) Or yep. the words in uh in when you're putting things in the newspapers in those days. Gotta keep your name short. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so he was born October sixteenth, eighteen fifty four, in Dublin, Ireland, which oh tells you yeah we forgot to mention yes at which the tells- top why we're doing Oscar Wilde now because it's his birthday. birthday. It's his <gasps> birthday. Happy birthday, Oscar Wilde! Thanks for happy birthday. Thanks for being everything. Thank you for your <laughs> long and complicated legacy. Oh yeah. my gosh! Yes. Yes. Uh, So he was the second of three children to Sir William and Jane Wilde. His mother was of Italian descent, and she published poetry under the name Speranza, the Italian word for hope. And we'll talk more about her uh, when we do our episode about Dolly Wilde. She's a a character. Mm -hmm. And then his father, Sir William, was an ear and eye surgeon, and he also wrote books about Irish archaeology and peasant folklore. Like, that's such like a... Here, in my day job... And my <laughs> hobby. Um, so yeah, but so writing was in Oscar's blood from yeah. the beginning. He was born to a very talented family and it would, mm-hmm. you know, continue into his legacy. Talented and very eccentric. Very so eccentric. Much about yeah. Oscar. The wild line yeah. is, uh, is wild. Wild. Yes. We will, we'll talk about <laughs> Speranza <laughs> a lot. Uh, when we when we do get to Dolly, but yeah, it's crazy. So in terms of education, he received a scholarship to study classics at Trinity College in Dublin from 1871 to 1874. He continued to study classics called greats at Magdalen College in Oxford from 1874 to 1878. And then he became part of the aesthetic movement. So the aesthetic movement was an artistic movement that emphasized the value of art residing primarily in its aesthetic or beautiful qualities rather than primarily in socio-political themes. So think art for art's sake. I want to make it pretty. I want to make it look good. I want beautiful things to look at and talk about. So right. it doesn't have to mean anything deeper. It just needs to be beautiful. Yeah. That's what matters most is that it's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. So he kind of took this ideal and placed it right up on himself in a lot of his fashion and <laughs> the way that he carried himself. He wore his hair long. He refused to engage in, quote, manly sports, except for the occasional boxing match. He decorated his rooms with fancy decorations, peacock feathers, and according to Elman's biography, once remarked, quote, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. God damn it. I do actually have a story about the blue china (laughs) and boxing. Do you want to hear it? I do. Yeah. So Oscar obviously, like, caught a lot of flack for his presentation in school and a bunch of other reasons. And so a bunch of these upperclassmen, I think they were upperclassmen, like, oh, we're going to go up to his dorm and, like, trash all this blue china. And there were people who were in sort of the common area that bore witness to this. And the guys all went upstairs. And all of a sudden, they all just come flying down the stairs, like, beat six ways to Sunday. <laughs> because Oscar Wilde was, like, six feet tall and 200 pounds. <laughs> And so Oscar Camp comes down the stairs, like steps over the bodies of his opponents, carrying the ringleader in his arms, who he then carries 
into like the ringleader's room, dumps him on his bed, steals his wine to toast to his good health. And that is oh my God. hands down my favorite story about Oscar Wilde. Uh, <laughs> he defended his blue china. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. Oscar Wilde is like not someone to mess with. Everyone just thought he was because the way he dressed. Do not fuck with this dandy. No, no, don't. Do not. Fuck Do not. With that. I feel like that should be a t-shirt, man. Do not fuck, <laughs> Do with, not this fuck with this dandy. <laughs> we'll put it on the list. <laughs> um, so yeah. So here is where Wilde began to truly develop his persona and the mythos that you know he was building for himself and started to build around him. Uh, so at one point he was temporarily expelled for a term for arriving back to college late from a trip to Greece with one of his professors. He just, like, didn't care about school as much. Yeah. He was enjoying himself. Yeah. He tried to, like, sell it as, like, well, this is basically a class. Yeah. And the Oxford Dons it- were like, no, it's not. You've been we- suspended for half a term. <laughs> we did We did an independent study. That sure. is pretty much verbatim what his letter said. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, nice try, at least, you know. Right. A for effort. Yeah. So when he finished at Modlin, he applied for positions at Oxford and Cambridge, but failed to get one. And so, with the last of the money from the sale of his father's estate, he set himself up as a bachelor in London. Hmm. Which brings us to our word of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Which is confirmed bachelor. And it, for those of you who are Patreon patrons, you might be a confirmed bachelor. Oh, yes. <laughs> now you get to learn where that came from. Yes. So, during the Victorian era, technically, the term confirmed bachelor referred to any man who was resolutely refused to get married. At the time, sex wasn't really something that was discussed publicly, nor was open speculation regarding someone's sexuality something that was widely discussed. You could have, like, open secrets and no one would really talk about it. Mm. So, it remained fairly private, so if a man were labeled a confirmed bachelor, he might be considered odd, for his choice, but all society knew was that he didn't wish to get married. It wasn't necessary that a confirmed bachelor was gay, but it could be. Yeah. It could very well be. If you don't want to get married, and you're a, like, if you're a dude and you have the freedom to not get married, chances are you might not be in, entirely straight. The, you could be asexual, you could be gay. It's the male equivalent of spinster. Pair them nicely yeah, exactly. together. Yeah. Yes, they do. Most of the time, though... It ended up applying to men who also had a very strong romantic relationship with other men. Sometimes they'd be living with another man for years and years. So you hear, you know, longtime confirmed bachelor with his roommate or companion or, you know, certain elements like that. It was... Can I talk about James Buchanan? Yes, you could talk about James Buchanan. I was so excited when I found out this detail. (laughs) So James Buchanan, the 15th president who served from 1857 to 61 was a confirmed bachelor. He had a close relationship with William Rufus King, who was vice president under Franklin Pierce. And they lived together for 10 years, actually up until King took an assignment in France. They attended social functions together. (laughs) This was my favorite part. Andrew Jackson called them Miss Nancy. (laughs) And Aaron V. Brown, who was the governor of Tennessee, referred to King as Buchanan's better half, which just, oh, good for them. I just thought that was so cute. Yeah. Our confirmed bachelor president. Yay. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Henry David Thoreau was also a confirmed bachelor, as was W.H. Uh, Auden. And W.H. Auden's lover was novelist Christopher Isherwood. And there's also, uh, we'll probably get into a whole episode about this, but there's also mm-hmm. a lot of speculation about none other than Abraham Lincoln 
as well, who belonged to the Bachelor Society of Springfield, Illinois, before marrying Mary Todd. We'll come back around to these two in a in a future episode. Yeah. He's also featured in the uh, Queer There and Everywhere book that we featured mm. some time ago. It's a nice little chapter. But interestingly, these men were allowed to be referred to as confirmed bachelors without their sexual habits or choices being questioned or having political ramifications so long as they weren't caught and publicly convicted of sodomy. So if you can show that you are having a completely innocent, no homo, no sexy stuff relationship with this dude that I really love and care about, okay, you know, who is your, quote, roommate. Right. It was very much along the lines of, as we'll see with Oscar Wilde, who just decided he didn't care about public perception, was like, as long as you kept up appearances and weren't, like, in anybody's face about it, no one would really talk about it or ask about it. It was was really Wilde's uh, unwillingness to abide by social appearances (laughs) (laughs) that led to you know, him being put on trial for his behavior. But yeah, so that's a confirmed bachelor. They may or may not always have been gay, but a lot of them probably were. Or at least a lot of them had romantic and or potentially sexual relationships with other men. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and that, coming back to Oscar Wilde, that brings us to the American tour. So in 1881, he published a book of poems that was fairly well received in London and in America, or at least in London, and they were looking for an American tour. Aestheticism had been poked fun at by Gilbert and Sullivan in their play Patience. So Richard Doilycart invited Wilde to do a North American speaking tour that would simultaneously prepare audiences for his U.S. tour of Patience. So his thinking was, ooh, we'll get the most like widely known and recognized aesthete of the age to do a speaking tour, and then I will promote my run of Gilbert and Sullivan's play in America. Mm-hmm. So Wilde agreed. He took the USS, the SS, sorry, not the USS, just the <laughs> SS, the SS Arizona, and arrived in January of 1882. He originally planned for a four-month tour, but it ended up being almost a year. One of his lectures was on interior design due to his desire to surround himself with beautiful things. And he believed that artists should offer higher things, that beauty and pleasure would hopefully replace utilitarianism. Uh, good luck trying to get that to happen in America. Especially Austria. in uh, immediately post-Reconstruction era America. Yeah. Yeah, this was a losing a battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The American press did not like Oscar Wilde all that much. He was caricatured. He and aestheticism in general was caricatured as unmanly and declared that Oscar only acted that way for attention. He also faced some uh, pretty virulent anti-Irish caricatures that were horrifically racist. We won't get into them here, but suffice it to say, they're they're pretty gross. Yeah. They're pretty awful. Mm-hmm. But even though the press might not have liked him, he seemed to do well among the actual folks he spent time with. As we mentioned in our labor union episode, he spent time with the coal miners in Colorado and then became a lifelong champion of labor movements and was feted at many of the fashionable salons while he was there. And that brings us to his return to England. So, Kitty, why don't you tell us about... uh, him getting married and having some kids and what his early life was like and his first lover. Yeah. So Wilde came back from the American tour, which had not gone over great, but it gave Wilde the opportunity to really come into himself to become the Wilde that we know today. So when he came back to London, he felt prepared to really sit down and establish himself. Now, in order to do that, he would need to 
basically make himself a little bit more respectable. He would no longer be this confirmed bachelor, and he needed money. So he married a woman named Constance Lloyd. I won't go too much into Constance. If you want to know more about her, there's a really excellent biography called Constance, The Tragic and Scandalous Life of Mrs. Oscar Wilde by Franny Moyle. Mm. Uh, If you want to learn more about Constance and Mm. the way this sort of all went down from her perspective, it's very good. Uh, So he married Constance Lloyd, and... They had two children. They had two sons. Their names were Cyril and Vivian, which, listeners, uh, Vivian's name is actually spelled with Y's, where you think all the I's go, and was so (laughs) Mm -hmm. sort of absurd to write that even occasionally his parents would just write it with the I's. They were like, why did we do this to ourselves? (laughs) Wilde started taking work wherever he could get it. He worked as a critic, generally providing witty cultural commentary on the various artistic goings-on, he became the editor of a publication called The Ladies' World. Now, Wilde felt this periodical was too frivolous and didn't reflect the modern woman. He renamed it The Women's World and revitalized it with submissions from notable women of the day on subjects of dress reform, literature, and politics. Wilde, however, got really bored with a pedestrian editorial job and hated that he couldn't smoke in the office. <laughs> well, they tried to make the him smoke in the pub downstairs, and Wilde hated pubs he had since his college days. So he was like, huh. I'm out. The magazine, however, would not survive without him and shut down. Really, I think they did one more issue after he left. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So 1886 is sort of the landmark here I'm going to be talking about. Up until this point, there's a lot of speculation about Wilde's sexual and romantic interactions with men. There's some people who write books talking about a lot of affairs or potential affairs in Wilde's younger years, but it's pretty concrete that this is sort of the affair that turned a corner for Wilde. So Mm. Wilde began an affair in 1886 with a family friend, Robert Ross, who is known as Robbie. I'll be referring to him as Robbie going forward. How they had met has been the subject of mystery and gossip. Robbie was kind of an out homosexual, so he was subject to a lot of teasing, a lot of gossip, and so someone said that he and Robbie met when Robbie was cruising for men in public lavatories in the park, which is a place men who wanted to have sex with men would meet pretty frequently, and while history seems Mm -hmm. to have painted Ross as the instigator of the affair, which you see in a lot of dramatizations, this is also speculation. However it happened, eventually Robbie was a paying guest of the Wilds. His family was traveling and he needed somewhere to live, so he lived with the Wilds. Constance found Robbie delightful, even well into the end of Wilde's life, well the end of Constance's life, and is an ob- uh, it is an object of tremendous speculation as to how much she knew or suspected. I will say, Robbie was 17 and Wilde was 32. As a reminder, under the just-passed uh, CAA, Robbie was of age when he and Wilde began their relationship, though it does clearly highlight that Wilde did favor partners younger than himself. Wilde's passion for the Greek extended from the academic and artistic to the habits and dynamics of his sexual and romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sort of the complication of that. Mm-hmm. As I said, Robbie was remarkable in that he boldly and unflinchingly embraced, defended, and advertised his homosexuality. He was Wilde's link to that emergent homosexual culture of the 19th century, the gateway to living as his true self. Even after their affair lost the shine of newness, they would be friends for the rest of Wilde's life. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that later because it's actually really quite touching, <laughs> the end of that story. Aww. After this, both Wilde's literary and social-sexual contexts proliferated, seemingly fueled by his new life. In 1891, Wilde wrote two volumes of fairy tales, The Happy Prince, which is one of my favorites, and House of Pomegranates. Mm. Wilde wrote a number of essays reflecting on his artistic, moral, and political views, including The Critic as Artist and The Soul of Man Under Socialism. He wrote The Portrait of Mr. W.H., an examination of the theory that a number of Shakespeare's sonnets were dedicated to a young man, 
Mm. Yeah. Just, you know, just put yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in the <laughs> yeah. fact that Shakespeare might have been writing to a young man for purely scientific reasons. Yep. For <laughs> well, he also, like, when things sort of went uh, pear-shaped, he was like, that was definitely satire. And everyone was like, it, it, it wasn't. <laughs> I did it. I was, JK, JK. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. In 1891, Wilde wrote Salome, which is sort of a departure from his other dramatic works. It's very uh, sensual. During this time, he also wrote his most famous plays. He wrote Lady Windermere's Fan in 1892, A Woman of No Importance in 1893, and Both an Ideal Husband and The Importance of Being Earnest in 1895. Wilde supposedly mm. wrote the first draft of The Importance of Being Earnest in two weeks. Wow. Oh my gosh. Jesus. Yeah. God damn. Because he was on a deadline and left it to the last minute. Really on brand for yeah. Oscar. I mean, relatable. Uh, yeah. Wilde's work almost universally reflects his artistic tenets of individualism, material, and spiritual beauty, discusses ideals of love beyond the physical, and even, even if written in the most lush and sensual prose. Unsurprisingly, duality figures in heavily. Wilde's characters are often caught between two worlds, with all kinds of secrets and indiscretions behind their carefully built masks. Gee, Gee I, I wonder, wonder why. <laughs> Hmm. Sensing some themes yeah. in these themes. <laughs> yeah. This this part this part uh, is is my favorite. So this is pretty great. Yeah, it's probably one of the most endearing stories about Wild. It was at the premiere of Lady Windermere's Fan that Wild staged his most famous publicity stunt. He was known for doing all kinds of things for attention on the American tour. Wild, who was known at this point mostly for adorning himself with lilies and sunflowers, which were symbols of the aesthetic movement, adopted a new buttonhole for the evening. It was a white carnation, dip-dyed in a distinctive malachite green, which produced a lurid blue-green artificial flower, and the flower appeared in Wilde's lapel, and on the leading man in the play, and then all of the young men in Wilde's entourage. So everyone was immediately like, what is that about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, apparently an associate of Wilde asked, what does it mean? And he replied, nothing whatever, but that is just what nobody will guess. So this fucker just decided to do something fun. And when everybody asked him what it meant, he's like, I don't know. I just decided to do it. Just for the shits, man. Yep. For the aesthetic. It's for, for the, the aesthetic. aesthetic. It's the aesthetic Oscar Wilde, a. Is a tum- Oscar Wilde is a Tumblr aesthetic <laughs> blogger. <laughs> he absolutely would be a Tumblr really, aesthetic really blogger. Would. Oh, yeah. His his Tumblr would be they would- amazing. <laughs> yeah. Because it would be like fancy interior shots of libraries and then mm. like... Mm-hmm. Nude men. Yeah. Mood boards. I feel like you would do like mood boards, boards. aesthetic mood boards. Absolutely. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So, Lee, do you want to tell us about uh, Dorian Gray? Yeah. Yeah. Scandal. (laughs) So, so in 1891, we have the publication of Wilde's only novel, Dorian Gray. Uh, So it was his own take on a Faustian bargain, expounding on his ideals of youth, beauty, hedonism, and art. If you haven't read it, so the youthful Dorian Gray is corrupted by the older Lord Henry Wotton, and in a fit of reckless despair, wishes that his body would not age or show stains of all the sins he is suddenly tempted to commit. So instead, he wishes that the portrait painted by Basil Hallward, a man hopelessly, crushingly in love with him, would age and decay instead. So what follows is a lurid aesthetic daydream as Dorian follows the path that Harry has set him on and then pushes it further. It's frivolous, flagrantly bisexual, 
selfish, and obsessed with material beauty. At the climax of the story, Dorian murders the man who had held him in such fatal affection and blackmails another male lover into disposing of the corpse. The story ends when Dorian destroys the painting in a fit of remorse and thus kills himself. So Wilde sent this manuscript to the editors and then got it back and was shocked to see that it was printed with a number of edits, mostly toning down Basil's homosexual fawning, and also forced to add the tragic ending. Uh, earlier concepts suggested that he would have much rather that Dorian got away with his crimes. Mm-hmm. Wilde said about the characters, quote, Basil is who I think I am, Harry is who the world thinks I am, and Dorian is who I might have been in younger days. So, you know, of course, associating himself with his obviously homosexual characters further cemented the suspicions of the public and only piled on to the scandal. Uh, so the Aberdeen mm. Weekly described Wilde's characters as characters more fantastic and repulsive than those of Dorian Gray and Lord Henry Wotton were surely never drawn. Poor little Basil didn't seem to be worth comment. Poor Basil. <laughs> yeah. I have so many, so many feelings about Basil. <laughs> So a picture of Dorian Gray basically fanned the flames of the ongoing outcry about the role of art in society. The English public required that art mean something, that it served to educate or moralize. But Wilde and the Estates at large believed that art didn't need to exist for a reason, art for art's sake. So Wilde in particular didn't care for moralism in general. For the novelization of the story, he included a preface tearing down his critics and ending with the phrase, all art is quite useless. <laughs> uh, as you could imagine, the reviews were pretty vicious. The Chronicle yeah. condemned the book's, quote, effeminate frivolity, its studied insincerity, its theatrical cynicism, its tawdry mysticism, its flippant philosophizings, and the contaminating trail of garish vulgarity. Gee, tell us, Chronicle, how do you God. really feel about the book? Yeah. I mean, honestly, this sounds more like an endorsement. Right? I want to read <laughs> like, that book. I would read it. I would read it. I have read it. If I read that, yeah, if I read this as a review, I'd be like, um, where would I find such a garishly vulgar book? Oh, and it worked. <laughs> like, it? sales just skyrocketed. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty great. It was like, I want to read the dirty book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I guess it was also called Filthy and Dangerous. Mm. Others, you know. I mean, right? What a way to get people to read a book. Right? Just big flashing danger signs. Do not press this button. Okay. Like, what can you tempt people with more? So, you know, other people just simply accused it of being, like, tedious, because Oscar uses a lot of fancy words. So the backlash yeah. basically lost the Wilde family much of their social standing. Uh, his wife Constance reported sadly that, quote, since Oscar wrote Dorian Gray, no one will speak to us. And they began being blacklisted at social clubs. The unprecedented scandal would dog Wilde all the way to the courts. And this actually went as far as his children and Constance changing their names. They wanted to completely remove themselves from the wild line. The, his children actually changed their name to Holland, which Vivian Holland will have a large role when we get to talking about Dolly in another episode. So let's start to move into some of the fun gay love stuff. Yeah, so this is this is going to be the high point and also the tipping point. Mm. Yeah. So in 1891, Oscar Wilde reconnected with a man whom he had been introduced to by a friend sometime previously on a visit to Oxford. I think one of Bosie's cousins had introduced them. The young man told Wilde he had enjoyed the picture of Dorian Gray immensely, and Wilde made sure he got him a luxury printed copy, which he signed. <laughs> Of course. Wilde often used books in his flirtations. He would give people books and he would underline passages in them. Okay, but like, like, that would work on me. 
Yeah, I, I underlined these passages because they made me think of you, or I thought you might like oh. them. Ugh. What a nerd. Yeah, like if, yeah. If someone did that to me, I'd be like, okay. I would run away with be, them immediately. Right? Right. <laughs> Won me over. Give me a book and tell me it made me, it made you think of me. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And he was certainly smitten with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed vision of the Iranian ideal. Like, Bosey Douglas mm. is a very, very attractive young man. He's, like, 1900s hot. Like, a very specific... <laughs> 1900s hot. I love that that's I mean, a specific, I... like, type. Yeah, like, yeah. seeing pictures of Bosey, I'm like, yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I that my life the, away That is that. the perfect way to describe that, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, who was Bosey? Uh, Lord Alfred Bosey Douglas, because even at 21, he already had a title, was born on October 22nd, so shares a birthday month with Oscar, 1870. And his family was very, very upper class. Like I said, he had a title. His father, John Sholto Douglas, was the ninth Marquess of Queensbury. And we'll talk about him later, because he's going to come back, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. To the detriment of everyone involved. So, Bosey's family life was tumultuous and abusive. Again, you'll find out later when we talk about his dad. And he had a long, sharp thread of intense mental illness that ran through his line, which expressed itself in forms of murders, suicides, kidnapping, and allegedly an instance of cannibalism. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Bosey huh. bears some significant hallmarks of mental illness, which combined dangerously with his background of trauma. And a little bit into his sense of class entitlement. He knew he was mm -hmm. of a different class than Wilde, and he would sometimes use it against him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Bosey was pretty damaged. It doesn't right. give him, it doesn't excuse his behavior, but I also see how he got there. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is probably a good time to insert that mm -hmm. this upcoming section will have some content warnings. So, yeah. yes. Yeah, especially having to do with Bosie's dad. So, uh, if you don't want to listen, definitely uh, make sure you check out our show notes, and that will tell you when we pick up again with the main narrative. Mm -hmm. So, so Bosie had an extremely abusive father. I just described him in my notes as a nasty troll of a man who would ultimately bring their little world down around their ears. His parents were divorced, which was a little bit unusual at the time, though in the upper classes mm -hmm. you could kind of do whatever you wanted. And Queensbury often taunted Bosie and his mother, saying that he had divorced her to prevent her from having any more children like Bosie. Gross. Yeah. yeah. And then he had a series of mistresses and a series of failed marriages. He was an unpleasant person. Mm. Mm. Unfortunately, he will come back later. We will never be free of his terribleness. Oy. Ugh. So, Bosie was the youngest of three sons, which, by the social values of the times, made him virtually useless and of no particular value, except to his mother, who doted on him. But the Queensbury family demons changed that, too. For some reason, Bosie's father got it into his head that Bosie's elder brother, Francis, had been engaging in a homosexual affair with Lord Rosebery, a prominent politician. He made sure to dog both Francis and Rosebery with this potential scandal, which was fueled by other aspects of Queensbury's social and political paranoia, which I won't get into. There are a lot. He really didn't like anyone at all. And he pushed Francis too far in an incident that was called by some a, quote, hunting accident, but was in the court of public opinion judged to be a suicide. Francis died. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, people seem to forget about Francis. You'll see in biographies, there's a picture of Bosie and Francis that will often be labeled as Bosie Douglas and a male friend. Or sometimes people will speculate that the other person is his lover and it's Francis. 
Wow. Like, that's his brother. That's his brother. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. wow. Yeah. And this wouldn't stop Bozy's father years later when he pursued the same line of action against his youngest son. His middle son didn't escape either. Queensbury harassed Percy and his wife all through the trials. Mm. Ugh. Yeah. Bozy came up in the English public school system, Winchester College, and attended Oxford, but it didn't mount to much. Wilde strengthened their relationship when he helped Bozy pay off a blackmailer to the tune of a hundred pounds. After Bosey was sent down, which is to say suspended, or in this case, more or less expelled from Oxford, the pair became virtually inseparable. Beautiful and poetic, Bosey seemed the perfect muse for Wilde, but their relationship was far from idyllic. Bosey was mercurial, demanding Wilde's attention, such as when he came down with the flu and Wilde tended to him without leaving his bedside, Aww. but being cruel in return. Aww. When Wilde caught the same flu from playing nursemaid, Bosey told him he was boring and went out partying and then stuck wild with the bill. What a shit! Yep. Jerk? Come on! Yeah. Really? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, this scene is beautifully dramatized in the 1997 biopic starring Stephen Fry as Oscar Wilde and Jude Law as Bosey. Wow. Yeah. That's very fitting. Yeah. yeah. A crystal vase gets thrown. It's it's <laughs> off the... Yeah, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah. The couple also fought over artistic matters. Wilde had tasked Bosey with translating Salome from French into English. The resulting quibbling over Bosey's efforts to do so apparently embarrassed their friends due to the sheer volume of letters and telegrams passed between the two. <laughs> like, at some point, Aubrey Beardsley was like, oh my god, there have been so many telegraph boys on our front step. This has to stop. <laughs> my telegram wow. brings all the boys to the yard. <laughs> Yeah, Oscar was very fond of telegrams. Uh, he would have loved text messaging because if he thought of a reply to you, he would just send a telegram mm -hmm. like immediately. Mm -hmm. He'd be like, wait, I have to send you the snappy thing before I forget. Yeah. Wow. That carried on over into Dolly, too. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if they could text? They'd just be blowing oh, up your phone all the time. Wow. Double, triple okay, texters. That. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, Wilde and Bosey's mother transpired to get Bosey out of town in hopes of getting him a job, like a government job posting in Egypt, and to get him out of Wilde's hair as his friends became more concerned about their relationship. <laughs> because, I mean, at this point, like... It was We're taking... so worried about you guys that we we should get him a job. Let's, let's yeah. give him a break. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, at this point, like, the writing was kind of on the wall. Wilde's relationships with his friends and his family were really deteriorating. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Bosey was isolating him and sort of destroying, undermining those relationships. Aww. When things were good, however, they were wonderful. They write each other the most beautiful love letters and, like, just fawn over each other all the time. So I have a letter here, which I've edited for brevity, because as we've established, uh, Oscar Wilde. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> My own dear boy. I want to see you. It is really absurd. I can't live without you. You are so dear, so wonderful. I think of you all day long. Miss your grace, your boyish beauty, the bright sword play of your wit, the delicate fancy of your genius, so surprising always in its sudden swallow flights towards north and south, towards sun and moon, and above all, yourself. I know that early in January you and I will go away together for a long voyage, and that your lovely life goes always hand in hand with mine. My dear beautiful boy, I hope you are brilliant and happy. Death and love seem to walk on either hand as I go through life. They are the only things I think of. Their wings shadow me. London is a desert without your dainty feet. Write me a line and take all of my love, now and forever, always and with devotion. But I have no words for how I love you. Oscar. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so another content warning. 
for the next section. We are at the point now where we need to address some things, especially because we're at the point in Oscar's life where he had begun pursuing numerous affairs and hiring sex workers. It's not a lot of fun to talk about these things, we know, but if nothing else, history teaches us that even the people we look up to are or can be part of systems that, while they seemed more or less acceptable at the time, we understand to be wrong today. So based on what we know, it would seem that the primary structuring of relationship in wild circles could be based on the Victorian interpretation of Greek pederastery, or as we mentioned, ephibophilia. So Iranian men were obsessed with it, especially those who, like Wilde, had studied history or the classics in their university days. This fit with the Victorian mania for Hellenic ideals. So they were trying to like live in the way that the Greeks did in their relationships. Like the original practice of Greek love, it could sound very poetic on paper. And indeed, in its ideal capacity, Wilde enjoyed, you know, enormously playing the older, wiser man to a younger, intellectually promising one. To Wilde, even a pack of leering renters could be sufficient fawning disciples. But it could also be intensely problematic for obvious reasons, given age difference. And problems range from the intense devaluing of women uh, especially as Lee and I have talked about when in the homosexual circles, gay men intensely devalued women to justifying practices, which could all too easily stray into predatory. Mm. I realized that I didn't define this, but when she said uh, leering renters, renter is a foreshortened form of rent boy, mm-hmm. which is a 19th century or 19th mm. century slang. Actually, I think it persists slang for a male sex worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, England, Victorian England's heavily stratified society extended to sex as well, with inherent power imbalances when the classes mixed. And they did mix, especially in homosexual circles, which the status quo found uh, also unacceptable uh, alongside the actual homosexual acts. They also didn't like them hanging out with people of different classes. Mm -hmm. Working class people were considered fair game, whether they engaged in sex work or not. And it was not uncommon for soldiers, gondoliers, servants, etc. to be solicited for sex, with certain professions being marked out as particularly likely to be bought or even coerced. There was also an unsettlingly cavalier attitude towards ephibophilia in Victorian society, which, as we defined at the outside, is the attraction to teenagers between the ages of 15 and 19. Wild's old mentor, John Ruskin, had to be stopped repeatedly pursuing girls Uh, Even below the shockingly, shockingly lenient Section 11 or the the CAA age of 13. So, yeah, we said that the age of consent for girls was 13. And apparently one of Wilde's mentors would even try to (laughs) go below that, which is that's pedophilia. That's That's not a phoebophilia. Yeah, Ruskin was. I mean, it's all gross, but. Yeah, Ruskin was a particularly uncomfortable case. Yeah. Yeah. So at Wilde's trial, it was admitted that had Wilde's affairs been to corrupt young women or girls, it would not have come to legal proceedings. So, Gross. Uh, right? Like, Victorian society would be like, it's fine if it's a girl, but better not, better not be trying to corrupt those young men. Gross. So many yeah. layers of Yeah, Victorians of awful. are just trash. Terrible. <laughs> this is why I'm sorry, I hate- but like, it's not... <laughs> yeah, right what like is. what is there to be sorry about it's horrible <laughs> sorry victorians <laughs> are bad <laughs> sorry all the victorians out there i don't know there aren't any. you're all dead it's fine so uh while biographers make sure to suggest that the majority of wild's behavior was above board we can't absolutely say that Oscar did not participate in or perpetuate these kinds of harmful systems. And it's irresponsible for us as, you know, 
academicians and historians to ignore that these were the facts of the culture he moved in. His friends, partners, and associates were participants in these kinds of exploitative sexual politics. And he, we can't say that he was not as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just, we have to talk about these things if we're going to talk about his experiences and his life. And the culture Um, that he moved in. It was was a fact of the matter. It's a crummy fact, but it is. Yep. So that brings us to the trials of Oscar Wilde. Yes. Yeah. So uh, so I'm going to start us off and then Kitty is going to be talking a lot about the first trial. So we're going to dive right into kind of where things were heading there. So as Section 11 applied mounting social pressure, something was bound to break. And when it did, someone had to pay. It seemed almost a natural choice to take down a homosexual, politically deviant Irishman who mixed with all classes and mimicked, but could never quite attain, and mocked at the very upper crust, who challenged English ideals of art, morality, and masculinity. Basically, Oscar Wilde was the perfect scapegoat in order to reassert social control. So he was perfect. He was ripe for the crucifying. And he wasn't helping himself. He, he wasn't helping himself. He was regularly seen in fine hotels and restaurants with groups of young men who were clearly of different social class from himself. He and Bosey were completely shameless in the eyes of society, and the relationship was the final scandal that brought Wilde's whole world crashing down. So it made him a really easy target. Because of their flagrant carryings-on and open association with disreputable elements, their borderline open affair had become... More than Douglas's family, which was concerned with scandal, could let stand. So, as we mentioned above, Bosey's father was not a good dude, and things between Bosey and Queensbury had always been unstable. Bosey had always been a sickly child, and his artistic disposition had long made his father suspicious. And here's another content warning for abuse. Uh, He often beat and berated Bosey and made, as we saw, abusive remarks to his wife. Things had been worsening between them. Queensbury had only recently sent his son a letter berating him for dropping out of Oxford and not getting himself into a quote-unquote real career. Bosey bought a gun and raved about shooting his father. The gun went off in a crowded restaurant and Wilde took it away from him, more afraid that Bosey might use it to hurt himself. So, Queensbury saw, all too clearly, confirmation of his suspicions about Bosey's sexuality, backed by his paranoia about homosexual affairs in general, hearkening back to what he did to Francis. Uh, He started to dog the couple and set about trying to embarrass Wilde and ruin his reputation and force them to split up. He attempted to invade a performance of the importance of being earnest with a bucket of rotten vegetables, clearly intending to throw them onto the stage, but... Luckily, he was turned away at the door as someone had warned Wilde of his plans. He even went so far as to harass Wilde in his own home. And then he crossed the line by paying a call at Wilde's club, where he left the front desk a card bearing the misspelled for Oscar Wilde, posing as a somdomite. So, meant to write sodomite, couldn't even spell it right. S-O-M-D-O-M-I-T-E. So, uh, this was the last straw. Wilde considered the leaving of the card to fall under the category of libel. This was, hey, I'm not going to take you harassing me anymore. And this was a quote-unquote public declaration. It was left at a front desk of a club. Anybody could see it. And so the shaky premise was held up by Bozy, who insisted that now would be the opportunity to strike and humiliate his father. Virtually everyone else told Wilde that this was a terrible idea. A, he couldn't afford a scandal, socially or financially. And B... It can't be libel if it's true. And <laughs> Wilde and Bosey hadn't, you know, hadn't been uh, careful to hide the evidence of them being super gay together. 
Oop. Yeah. Uh, history largely puts the blame on Bozy, and for sure, Bozy definitely encouraged Wilde to pursue the lawsuit while knowing full well the extent of evidence in favor of his father, and, you know, perhaps the way his own class would protect him. But ultimately, Oscar, who was a smart man, well-versed in the consequences right. of public scandal, decided to pursue a libel trial anyway. Because it was like, okay, is- you're a very smart man. But you are being this very is one dumb. Of those, well, right? This is one of those things where I want to be like, dude, Oscar, like, this is not going to go, go well. Just, just, just yeah, let it. Just let it. Yep. Th- mm-hmm. I mean, this reminds me of, like, in Hamilton, where the dude is, like, you know, <laughs> where, where Philip is like, no, you said bad things about my father. I challenge you to a duel. And he's like, I'm, I'm watching a play. Go away. <laughs> right? It's like, no, this is not worth it. Okay. All right. You're, yeah, all right, yeah. you're just going to go. You're going to do it. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so the first trial is the libel trial. Yep. So to kick off what's known in academia as the three trials of Oscar Wilde, we're going to go for Queensbury versus Wilde. So needless to say, the libel action was an absolute disaster. The first of the, <laughs> yeah, first of many nails, many, many nails in Wilde's coffin, which is closing rapidly about now. Mm. The amount of evidence presented in Queensbury's favor, that is to say that Wilde was in fact a practicing homosexual, was so prolific it nearly seemed that Wilde was on trial, which, formally, that would come later, but the Mm. damage was being done. Evidence ranged from the plausibly abstract contents of Wilde's own writing, such as the picture (laughs) of Dorian Gray, and the less dismissible evidence presented in Wilde's letters to Douglas, procured from the hands of professional blackmailers. Lastly, Mm. and most damning in its graphic presentation, the testimony of hotel staff that indicated they had seen Wilde with boys and that they suspected he had sex with them based on some stains found on the sheets. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, the blackmailers that were also responsible for the letters were also, they testified at the trial, and a lot of them testified mm. under pressure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm. from, Yikes. we'll nail you for gross indecency or sodomy. Yeah. Yeah. So Wilde's associations were questioned. In particular, Wilde was grilled about his association with a man named Alfred Taylor, which would become important later. He was made to testify to Taylor's social and personal habits. If Taylor sometimes wore ladies' clothing, came up quite often. And who else Taylor might have introduced him to? Wilde, humiliated, was forced to withdraw the libel charge. Queensbury was found not guilty, and the court declared that his accusation that Wilde was, quote, posing as a somdomite, <laughs> as Queensbury so eloquently wrote it, was true in substance and in fact. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah, it gets worse. It's all downhill from here, guys. Of course, Wilde did little to help himself. He seemed to have treated his time on the stand as the opportunity to perform. He immediately oh hamstrung his cause when Queensbury's defense lawyer, who had gone to school with Wilde, caught him by pointing out that he had lied about his age. Oh boy, buddy. On the stand. And Carson oh was like, gosh. buddy, I went to school with you. I know you. I know how old you are. <laughs> and Wilde was like, crap. Damn it. Yeah. Wilde continued to dig his own grave when Carson asked him if he had kissed a servant, and Wilde quipped that, no, he hadn't, because the boy was too ugly. Oscar! Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then he was like, <laughs> like, right answer, wrong way of putting it. Yeah, like, oh boy. don't say it like that. And Carson was like, you want to run that by me again? And Oscar was like, ah, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, guys. Just kidding. This is it was going satire. so well. <laughs> So basically the courts were like, that's it. You can't accuse this person of libel. Because you are in fact a somdomite. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Bozy describes his father as barely literate, and I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's so the evidence is there. <laughs> yeah, Wilde knew that this was the beginning of the end. Queensbury had given the Crown all the evidence they needed to bring him up on criminal charges, so he just shot himself directly in the foot. Mm-hmm. After fleeing in disgrace from the Queensbury trial, Wilde went to rent ground at the Cadogan Hotel. He wrote a hasty letter to the evening news, explaining that all he had done and all that he would endure had been in order to save Bosey from the stand. Wilde sent Robbie to cash a check for 200 pounds, presumably to leave the country and to break the news. He sent Robbie to break the news to Constance. Wow, buddy. Come on, man. Yeah. Who told him that she, too, hoped that Wilde would flee the country. It was just the sensible thing to do. Wilde himself did not face Constance in these dire hours. He wrote to her early in the day to, quote, allow no one to enter my bedroom or sitting room. See no one but your friends. Ever yours, Oscar. Okay. A flurry of visitors to the hotel and arguments followed and Wilde refused to flee. People were in and out. It was a bunch of people Wilde knew, some reporters. There was Bosey at some point. And that was a disaster. Around five, Wilde received warning that the arrest was imminent. And no matter what his friends did, he wouldn't leave. He said that he would stay and do my sentence, whatever it is. At six, mm. two detectives arrived, stating they had a warrant for Wilde's arrest. Weighed down by grief and brandy, Wilde got unsteadily to his feet, saying, If I must go, I will give you the least possible trouble. Mm. Robbie, who clearly had to clean up this whole mess, went back to the Wilde's family home in Tite Street, where he broke into Wilde's office and bedroom in order to remove and destroy incriminating evidence. Constance had already fled with their children. In the intervening time between Wilde's arrest and the commencement of his criminal trials on the 26th of April, the entire contents of the Tite Street house would be sold to cover Wilde's legal fees. Wow. Everything, including Wilde's unfinished manuscripts, the children's toys all of it oh my gosh also arrested was alfred taylor who i mentioned a little further up taylor would be charged with wild for the sake of judicial expediency apparently why do one after mm. the other if you could just charge the both of them for <laughs> yep there you go taylor had been introduced to wild by either Bosey or by maurice schwab who was the nephew of the prosecutor who would try him hmm. yep as a man who facilitated liaisons between men who wanted to have sex with other men transactionally or otherwise he would introduce you to sex workers he would also be like you two look like you'd be good for each other you should hook up mm. <laughs> his rooms in little college street westminster is a well-known meeting place for london's homosexual set the prosecution had gone to lengths to convince taylor offering him both money and immunity to turn him state's evidence against wilde and taylor refused to betray his friend oh good job yep in good the end job. he got the same hard labor sentence same set of trials dang yeah wow. Wow. So that brings us to trial number two, the love that dare not speak its name. So Wilde and Alfred Taylor stood in the dock to hear the indictment against them. It contained no less than 25 counts between them. Eight alleged against Oscar with Charles Parker, Alfred Wood, and Edward Shelley, and a boys or boys unknown at the Savoy Hotel. Jointly with Taylor, Wilde was charged to conspiracy, violating Section 11, which meant that they had agreed to or facilitated procurement of acts of gross indecency. If they couldn't get wild for the act itself, they can nail him for intent, which had a significantly lighter burden of proof. Mm. The previously considered charges of sodomy against both Wilde and Taylor had been dropped. So you were thinking uh, about it. You might not have done it, but we can. We think you were thinking about it, and that's just as bad. Yeah. Dumb. Supposedly, according to Andrei Rafalovich, there was a crack of thunder and lightning as the charges were being read. Because why not? Why not? <laughs> also, speaking of people, you should come back to Andrei Rafalovich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was in a long-term, like, 40-year relationship with Wilde's ex, John Gray. Oh, fun times. Oh. Yep. So, much like in the Queensbury trial, presented against Wilde as evidence were his own works and the works of his associates. 
Most famously, perhaps, is the presentation of Bozy's poem, Two Loves. We won't quote the whole thing, but the verse with which the prosecution was most concerned was the last. What is thy name? He said, My name is Love. Then straight the first did turn himself to me, and cried, He lieth, for his name is Shame. But I am Love, and as I want to be alone in this fair garden till he came, Unasked by night, I am true love. I fill the hearts of boy and girl with mutual flame. Then sighing, said the other, have thy will. I am the love that dare not speak its name. Mm. We've we've heard things like that before, right? What exactly was the love that dare not speak its name? The court wanted to know, sensing some sly implication. And Wilde, who had deflated considerably since the failed action against Queensbury, finally found his voice again. This is, you know, where he really brings himself back up. He says, The love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect. It dictates and pervades great works of art like those of Shakespeare and Michelangelo, and those two letters of mine, such as they are. It is in this century misunderstood, so misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man, when the elder man has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so the world does not understand. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. So the defense's strategy was entirely to undermine the credibility of the witnesses. The testimony against Wilde was unreliable in that the Parkers and the other blackmailing sex workers put on the stand were obviously a criminal element and couldn't be trusted. The accounts by hotel staff could easily be discredited due to the time that had passed in each case. The statements against Wilde by Edward Shelley were unreliable, based on Shelley's self-admitted poor mental health. Wilde's works were meaningless literary fancies. On some counts, the judge agreed. Shelley was too unstable and too much time had lapsed to rely on the statements of the hotel staff. This evidence ended up being disregarded and the prosecution dropped the already tenuous charges of conspiracy, which shocked the courtroom. However, the judge would not ignore the testimony of Wood and his cohorts, nor would he be led to believe there was no sexual or romantic subtext to Wilde's writings in his novel or in his letters. He refused to discount the testimony of Taylor's, the landlords, and the neighbors. Taylor had an utterly useless defense attorney, and so nothing could be done for him. We literally have no idea what happened to Taylor. Yeah. Oh. Like, as far as I can tell, his attorney just sat there and, like, sat on his hands the whole time. Oh, man. <laughs> Awful. So, the jury was out from 1.35 to 5.15 p.m., much longer than anticipated, eventually declaring themselves undecided. The judge declared a mistrial and, against advisement, stated that a new trial would need to be carried out. Wilde would be brought down by any means necessary. They were really, really determined to get him. His friends were able to get him out on bail, and he spent the interval between the two trials being shuttled between family and friends as he was now homeless. Again and again, people advised him to flee the country, but he refused to live as a fugitive. Yes, and that brings us to trial number three, the last-ditch effort to bring down Oscar Wilde. The last trial was presided over by Mr. Justice Sir Alfred Willis. Charles Gill was replaced by Solicitor General Sir Frank Lockwood as the Crown's prosecutor, and Sir William Edward Clark remained as Wilde's defense attorney. The Marquess of Queensbury that asshole that we've talked about, quote, 
With his stableman's gait and dress, the bowed legs, the twitching hands, the hanging lower lip, the bestial and half-witted grin, according to Wilde, lurked on the fringes of the courtroom. (laughs) He didn't like him, which is fair. He sounds like a jerk. (laughs) Again, Clark tried to legally and physically separate Alfred Taylor from Oscar Wilde, but Lockwood countered with the request to take Taylor's case through first, to which Clark objected. The same jury would decide both cases, but eventually it was decided that Taylor would be tried first. Justice Willis pointed out that Taylor had been waiting seven weeks in prison and his trial should not be delayed further. As predicted, Taylor's case was quickly heard. It took a day and a half and quickly decided in 45 minutes. Wow. So, yeah, sounds like he has a really horrible (laughs) defense attorney. Poor guy. He'd also uh, already been arrested once. Oh. He had a long-term partner that wrote Oscar the previous August that was like, hey, we bump some money. <laughs> Taylor's like gotten himself into a not insignificant amount of trouble. Oh man. Yeah. Jakes. So the trial had held few surprises or deviations from the previous one. Aiming perhaps for credibility and sympathy, the crown made Shelley their star witness because it appeared that Shelley and Wilde's friendship carried on after this period during which Shelley claimed Wilde made advances toward him. The judge felt that Shelley was an unreliable witness. When Charles Parker took the stand, he was wearing a new suit paid for by the prosecution. Hmm. The prosecution had also paid for both Parker brothers to be maintained at Chiswick in the company of a crown detective. What was not revealed during the trial was that these were not the only provisions made for the witnesses. They had all been receiving five pounds a week since the Queensbury trial. Because that's not prejudicial. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Wow. Clark made his usual defensive points going after the reliability of witnesses, but Lockwood's responding closing statement emphasized the sheer volume of evidence. He dragged out the letter to Bosie Douglas, the blackmail paid to Wood, Wilde's associations with Taylor, ignoring, of course, the fact that his own nephew, Maurice, had introduced them, of course. Wood and the Parkers and other male sex workers, all of which he said proved the same ends, that Wilde associated with indecent people and he was himself guilty of indecencies. He questioned why Douglas had not been brought forth if indeed he could disprove the testimony of the hotel staff. Douglas, of course, could not be called for anything as every effort was made on all sides to keep him from appearing in court at all. Justice Willis gave his final remarks, working himself into a towering rage as he did so, as if poisoned by the crimes which he was tasked with describing. He impressed upon the jury the need to maintain a level of moral superiority in deliberating the case, and at half past three, the jury retired. There was a flicker of hope when just before six, the jury reappeared with a question about some minor bit of evidence. But once this question was answered, the jury took only minutes to return the guilty verdict. Clark made a last ditch effort. He asked for an extension for time to examine a legal technicality that might prevent or stall the inevitable. But Justice Willis rejected the motion. Taylor was brought in for the sentencing and Justice Willis closed the trial thusly. Oh, we don't need to read this whole thing. Yeah. You can look it up. It's... Yeah, you guys, you can look it up. It's just it's really pretty, heavy. Yeah. yeah, it's a really, really heavy thing. The court erupted into cries of shame and in the box, Wilde lost composure that he'd been maintained during the proceedings and is said to have cried out, and may I say nothing, my lord. Ugh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Like, it's gotta be awful to sit through all of that. Just never, it just probably would have felt never ending. To just yeah. Especially since he'd already done it, I guess, technically twice, since this was all the same stuff that came up in the Queensbury trial and in the Miss trial. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm sure at some point he was like, just get it over with. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. I know it's done. This is it. Oh, man. So we're going to talk about the next step. 
Wilde spent time at three different prisons over his two-year incarceration, Pentonville, Wandsworth, and most famously at Reading Jail. That's one you hear a lot about. It's where he wrote his prison writings and he wrote about it afterwards. Wilde had been sentenced to hard labor. His tasks included walking on a treadmill for hours a day and picking apart old ship's ropes for industrial repurposing. While his own sentence was brutal, Wilde was as horrified, if not more so, by the treatment of fellow inmates, by the punishments for even small infractions, and the way prison staff could be punished for small gestures of kindness. The plight of children caught in the Victorian penal system devastated Wilde. Upon his release, he would write essays and letters on the subject of prison reform in England. Unsurprisingly, the food in prison was very bad, and Wilde often refused to eat. When he did eat, the consequences were often dire, due to foodborne illness. Once, weak from disease and hunger, Wilde fainted in chapel. The fall ruptured his right eardrum. The injury would render him completely deaf on one side, and, as we'll see a little later ultimately claimed his life. Wow. Yeah. One thing that I really wanted to talk about is, so Kitty mentioned that in prison, he did some writing. So in prison, he wrote several letters, and this was often his only creative outlet while he was there. While nothing in the prison regulations allowed prisoners to write plays or novels or essays, inmates had the permission to write letters. He wrote often to Bosey and other friends, and his letters to Bosey began to start to show the creeping bitterness that Oscar began to feel towards him post-trials. Things started deteriorating. He had written Mm -hmm. to solicitors in the home office or limited quantities to friends, but every time his letters were inspected and the writing materials were removed as he finished. So there was nothing that he could continually work on, which didn't allow him the freedom to work on anything fiction. But Mm. here is the fun thing. Regulations didn't specify how long a letter should be. And so if a letter wasn't finished, then the prisoner supposedly could be allowed to take it with him when he left prison. So this gave him and the new... So there there had been at the jail an, a governor that was very strict with rules. And recently there had come a new, more liberal governor of the jail, Major Nelson, who was ready to relax some of the regulations. So they actually apparently kind of came up with the idea together that in January 1897, came up with the idea that led to something called De Profundis, which is an enormous piece of writing that Oscar Wilde was able to do because he structured it as a letter addressed to Bosey. It took him three months to finish, and it had many revisions. And so because it was technically considered a letter, Wilde was given pen and ink every day, And then what he wrote was removed each evening and then handed back to him in the morning. Or parts were given back to him to revise. And because it was a letter, it would be his property upon his release. Mm. So this letter is really where you start to see Oscar's love for Bozy turn to bitterness. In some ways, he accused him of distracting him from his art and helping to ruin his reputation. And yet you can still see his deep love and attachment to him. Mm. Upon his release, he gave it to Ross who had two copies made. One, Oscar kept, and the other, he sent to Bosey, who destroyed it unread. Ross published excerpts in 1905, but the complete version wasn't published until 1949. There's a really awesome excerpt of it on Project Gutenberg for free, so we'll link that in the notes if you want to read it. But I think that's pretty badass. Like, hmm, if I can write letters, I'm gonna write a letter. (laughs) And it, it's and it's absolutely epic. incredible. Yeah. yeah, and heartbreaking too. Like you see yeah. in that letter what the trials did to completely disrupt Wilde's outlook on life and beauty and optimism. 
Like, it really mm. damaged his ideals. Yeah. All right. So we're getting in the part that's a real bummer. Sorry, everyone. So after Wilde got out of prison, he went to continental Europe. He could not stay in England. And there's not a whole lot to say about his exiled years. He lost a lot of friends. He spent a lot of time begging people for money and not working. Constance cut him off because he was living with Bosey. And he drank a lot. So much. So on October 10th, 1900, Wilde had a routine operation on his deaf ear the one that he had, had ruptured in prison, and instead of healing, the wound went bad, and the resulting infection spread to Wilde's brain. Wilde was already very unwell, and the surgeon confided to Robbie that Oscar would only live for four months if he didn't stop drinking immediately. So if he hadn't had the surgery, he still wouldn't have made it to mm. the end of the year. And of course, Wilde, never one to be told, like, hey, don't do something. <laughs> he was completely undeterred and once he and Robbie went for a drive and Wilde made him stop like every couple hundred yards so he could go into a cafe to get a glass of absinthe. Wow. wow. Yeah. A lot of absinthe. Yeah. I just wrote a piece about Oscar Wilde's absinthe habits so <laughs> that'll Ooh. be on my blog by the time this airs. That was my Oh yeah, we'll make sure we'll link yeah. that. Yeah. They walked in the Pierre Lachaise, which is the big cemetery in Paris, and Oscar jokingly asked Robbie if he had chosen a plot for his tomb because that's where he was at. He continued to drink. He told his friend, Reggie Turner, who was attending to him, that he had a nightmare he was feasting among the dead. And Reggie helpfully replied, But I'm sure you're the life and soul of the party. Oh. Oh. Poor Reggie Turner. Reggie oh. Turner had it, like, real rough, guys. <laughs> if, if you read uh, Robbie Ross's letter to Frank Harris talking about the last hours of Oscar Wilde, it's just Reggie got the short end of the stick. Mm. It was on one of these occasions towards the end that Wilde was bedridden and intoxicated, and he uttered one of his most famous remarks. Mm. My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has to go. No, oh, buddy, you're fucked up. Yeah, everyone I'm sure was like, oh, we're yep. gonna talk about the wallpaper now. <laughs> so you often hear these quoted as Wilde's last words, and technically they're not. But they're probably some of the last words we would recognize as coming from the Oscar of the pre-prison days. Mm. Sadly, Wilde was actually largely incoherent at the end of his life. He was delirious from fever and those good 19th century painkillers. And he was belligerent and sometimes described as hysterical and stricken with aphasia, uh, which means he lost a lot of his language capabilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Imagine being Oscar Wilde and looking into the terrified and confused faces of your friends and realizing that you no longer had any grasp of spoken language. Jesus. Like, that, like that's honestly, like, I would be terrified if I didn't know how to yeah. speak. Yeah. Like, that, that's just, like, kind of horrifying to me, that idea. How much, le- like, how much more so for Oscar Wilde. Yeah, I was writing about that for a, a different project, and I was, like, a phone booth at work, and I just burst into tears. Wow. I, like, I, that, the, whole, like, I cannot imagine the level of horror. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, by November 29th, it became apparent that the situation was completely hopeless. The poet could not speak. He could only answer questions by raising and lowering his hands. Ross managed to find a Catholic priest who would come and perform the necessary rituals to receive Wilde into the Catholic Church and grant him last rites. Wilde had wanted to be a Catholic his entire life, but owing to some stipulations in his father's will, had financially never been able to pursue it. Mm. Mm. Wilde's tongue and throat were so swollen that he couldn't swallow the communion wafer that was offered to him. Sorry, (laughs) I told you guys this was going to be a bummer. Yeah. He I'm lapsed. like hiding my face. I'm like hiding <laughs> my face in my shirt. <laughs> he lapsed into unconsciousness, and at 10 minutes to 2 on November 30th, Oscar Wilde simply passed away. He was buried 
at Bagno Cemetery at Bozy's expense, though eventually the funds would be raised for Robbie to commission a tomb for Oscar in the Pierre Lachaise, where he now lies. And 50 years after Wilde's death, Robbie would be interred there as well, so they would be together forever. Oh, oh my god. Robbie was so much better for you than Bozy. It's it's complicated, Bozy and Robbie were also involved on and off over the years. It's Buddies. really complicated. It's really no. complicated. Oh. Yeah. So that's the big tomb. You used to be able to kiss it. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, for preservation reasons, they had to put a big fiberglass wall up because yeah. it was destroying the monument. And that was only that yeah. was only re- like super recently, too. Yeah. Because people like have been right coming the- there since <laughs> Since the 1900s to yeah. kiss Oscar Wilde's grave, and it started yeah, it like, like deteriorating it. <laughs> yeah, they did Ow. that like right around the time I started getting really serious about this, and I was really oh. bummed that I was never going to be able to. Because it's like a huge fine mm-hmm. if you get someone to lift you over the barrier so you can kiss it. Like they fine you a bunch, and I'm already like, what's the exchange rate? How many francs is that? And is, it worth <laughs> it? is it worth, is it it? worth the amount of money? <laughs> Oh man. And that's it. That's the life of Oscar Wilde, as small oh. as we could distill it. Yes. <laughs> like a recently podcasting way. Uh, we oh can only gosh. do so much in one episode. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, and he just, he shapes so much. I can't even imagine what history would be like without Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it really is difficult to imagine what like what especially western society Mm. would look like without oscar wilde yeah and this like doesn't even scratch the surface of his work no the works of his associates it's it's a lot it's so much Mm -hmm. thankfully there's about a bazillion sources you can (laughs) yeah right if you want to learn more right and and speaking of a bazillion sources (laughs) um, (laughs) our next fun segment our pop culture tie-in and there are also a bazillion pop culture tie-ins unlike some of the characters or people human beings that we talk about on this podcast there are so many things about oscar wilde (laughs) so many yes there is a 1936 play and a 1960 film called Oscar Wilde. There was a 1985 miniseries called Oscar and a 1997 film called Wild. I just love how everyone's got to find their own way to like not just say, this is <laughs> about Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Wilde. And that one's the one with uh, Stephen Fry and Jude Law. And it's mm. quite oh, the 97 one. Yeah. Ugh, okay, I got to watch that one. Yeah, it's got baby Jude Law in it, which is like oh, very very cute. <laughs> yes. And I always love Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is one of my favorite. He is He's... a stunning wild. He is the perfect wild of the Greek period. It's incredible. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. There was a film and a play based specifically on his trials. There's a stage play of The Importance of Being Oscar, one called The Judas Kiss from 98. There's even an opera that came out five years ago called Oscar. I, can I just say Oscar Wilde would be so pleased, oh, I yeah. think, at all oh, of these yeah. like adaptations of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the he amount of attention his, oh, he's gosh. getting oh, yeah. is just, especially right now, which I'll get into when I get to mine. Well, we've and we've talked yeah. previously about how how happy he would be to have known that in Australia, his name is used as slang for homosexuality, and the fact that an entire symbol of the Green Carnations continued on as a symbol yeah. for male love until, like, the 70s, right? Like, yeah. that's that's so. what we had, yeah. you know? And, until- and beyond. Uh, exactly. You can get, like, Green Carnation pins nowadays yes. and stuff, but... Absolutely. <laughs> he, yeah, he would be very happy that, to know that, like, his name is synonymous with being gay. Like, if anybody, exactly. if anybody is going to know any part of queer history, or if somebody 
who is not us who does this for all of our free time were to say, you know, were to be asked, <laughs> who's a gay person from history that you know? Probably the answer would be Oscar Wilde. Yep, yep. So there was a, and if you're interested, there have been also been a ton of adaptations of some of his most famous works. The Importance of Being Earnest is a long-running stage play. There was a 2002 film production of it with Colin Firth, isn't it? I yep, think so. Yep. It's it's fine. I have I have I okay. So I was the lighting technician for a community theater production of The Importance of Being Earnest when I was in high school because I, I didn't know it yet, but I'm, I'm really gay, also a nerd. And I love the stage play so much. And I have so many like amazing, beautiful memories of that cast and being involved in that stage production that like nothing can ever compare <laughs> to stage production. It has a very special place in my heart. So the, movie, the film is fine, but the stage play is better if you ever get a chance to go see it. It's so great. I would never have known that he wrote it in like six weeks. Yeah. Well, he wrote the first draft. I have no idea how the long the corresponding drafts took. But still, like, I can't write anything that long in two weeks. Yeah. Gosh, right? Gosh. Yeah, there have been a ton of adaptations of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Can't even name them all. So, so many. Yeah. And most so of them many. are bad. Sorry, that's some editorializing. But a <laughs> lot of them are very bad. <laughs> just, just read it. Just read it. Yeah. Yeah, there's also the Oscar Wilde Murder Mysteries by Giles Brandreth, who is the current president of the Oscar Wilde Society. And uh, in those, they feature a fictionalized Wilde as a kind of Sherlock Holmes. Oh my God. Solving mysteries. These are so good. While being followed by friends acting as his Watson. The best, I guess, in Kitty's opinion are the ones where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle acts as Watson. And apparently he's very sassy and, and long-suffering. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, they are the best beach reads I have ever had. Brandreth really nails Wilde's voice. Oh man. Oh, yeah. that's, that's beautiful. I love how many like of these people have like murder, murder mysteries, mystery right? versions like, of their Borden lives. Lizzie Borden had one too. Like gr- Lizzie, Lizzie Borden, Borden, Girl yeah. Detective. Yeah. Girl mm-hmm. Detective. They're like the Jane Austen mysteries, mm-hmm. which I actually find quite delightful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super fun. Wow. Everyone everyone just wants to imagine their favorite person <laughs> from history as a murder mystery. A Sherlock Holmes style detective. detective. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, I'm all about it. So. And then there's a new film that is coming out currently as we record this will be coming out next week so this is it's called the happy prince and it's starring rupert everett as oscar wilde it also has colin firth in it and it's following the uh prison and post prison years in exile Mm. so bring a tissue bring a tissue or (laughs) yeah i uh i got invited to go to a screening of it next wednesday i'm excited but also wow that's gonna be a bummer so yep. you should you should ask John, our friend John. Hey John, we love you for like a box of his special <laughs> tissues. Oh, you know? Yes. He's got like this he has his favorite brand of tissues and they discontinued them, so he went online to buy all of his favorite tissues. Yeah. As you do, so we're just putting him we're just putting do. him on blast. <laughs> hey John. <laughs> Lee's gonna need some tissues, some special <laughs> tissues for the Oscars. <laughs> so uh so that leads us to our how gay were they? ratings i have a feeling we'll all be on the same page here but i'm interested to, mm-hmm. s- to hear what everybody will come up with gretchen let's start with you how gay indeed was oscar <laughs> wilde well i feel like because he's like our our patron saint for the podcast that i have to give him a a 20 out of 10 novel length letters all right <laughs> it's appropriate <laughs> that's that's yes. a, god let's see 20 of those times how yeah. long one of those was. You're going right. to be reading for a while. 
Right. Yes. But I but I feel like that that Wilde would want me to be prolific. Yes. Yes. About these <laughs> novel length letters, it would be appropriate mm-hmm. to use lots of big words, very fancy words. I love it. And it'd be really beautiful. It may not have a lot of meaning, but it'll be like really beautifully aesthetic prose. <laughs> yeah. Talk a bit sideways, so scholars spend the next hundred years being like. What is your opinion on this issue? <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. And Kitty, what says you? Yeah, I'm going to give Oscar a uh, a 10 out of 10 for gay. I don't necessarily like to throw his relationships with women under the bus, but since he eventually pursued his affairs were exclusively with men, at some point we understand that he was just absolutely the opposite, complete opposite of sexually attracted to women. So he just came into his own a little late. Just 10 out of 10. Very gay. Woo. Late bloomer. Yes. Lee, what about you? So I think I'm going to give Oscar too gay, too function, and know when <laughs> to keep his mouth shut wild. An infinity ring of mm. green carnations. Just an infinity Ooh. symbol. Yep. I of gr- made out, of, made green out of green carnations. I think that's I think that's apt for him. That's fitting. Yeah. Laid delicately yeah. upon his grave, which no one can kiss anymore. <laughs> yeah, you gotta throw things over the wall. There we go. Whew. Yeah, just like throw a wreath over the wall. Yeah, infinity ring wreath over the wall. My goal is to somebody chuck a manuscript over it. <laughs> <laughs> This is for you! This is for taking like 20 years of my life. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Oh. So, uh, so that is it for today's episode. Kitty, thank you so much for coming on with us and yeah, telling us telling us all about the the life of this profound esthete. Where can folks learn more about you and what you are doing these days? So I'm kind of an internet hermit. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much you can find me on my Oscar Wilde nonfiction blog, which is scholaroofnoimportance.wordpress.com. It's a little empty right now because my time got eaten up with this absinthe and Oscar lecture that I wrote that will have come out by the time this airs which ate my entire summer, but there should be so much more content coming in the fall-winter months. Wonderful. Yay! And then you can find us, your hosts, online, individually, on the internets. Gretchen, where can folks get at you on the tweeters and the other places? A tweety. Well, when I am not talking about gay history, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over Star Wars for thefandamentals.com and a Song of Ice and Fire on my personal website, gnellis.com, or over at YouTube under Baal the Bard. Or you can check me out on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter. What about you, Lee? So when I'm not prancing around like a dandy with green carnations, I am usually talking about comics, queer TV, and politics over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and editing these episodes, talking to my other friends about podcasts, doing gay stuff. Yeah. Awesome. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can, as always, support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon mini-sodes. We just sent one out recently, which was really fun. We have special sneak peeks, opportunities to have your voice show up in the show, and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website, and you can join the ranks of our patron community, along with the amazing... Kathleen Christopher, Marissa Fernandez, Trisha Sendo, Alex X, H.M. Parker... 
Fuzzy Logic podcast, Victoria Anderson, Ina Bernjik, and Jennifer Brady. So yeah, thank you for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. You can also buy awesome merch at our new History is Gay store. Click on shop at our website. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious. Thank you.